You're listening to the Underscore Transformation Podcast, your practical guide to business transformation. Welcome to the Underscore Transformation Podcast. This is episode 12. My name's Jason West. And I'm Joe Wales. And together we're the founders of Underscore. This week's episode, I'm talking to Shafiq Baraboya. Shafiq is a finance transformation consultant uh, with experience across multiple organizations and different industries. He's a fascinating individual. He's got a lot of interesting points and experience to share. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Shafiq. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. I understand that your background is in finance, uh, and it would be really great if you could uh, give our listeners a brief overview of your experience. Yeah, so uh, as you already articulated, I'm sort of uh, a finance transformation um, specialist. Um, I started out my career in finance roles in tech and telco. I did a brief stint um, in sort of private equity, um, running a couple of startups um, and also doing some fund administration, then moved to Deloitte for my sins um, in the CFO (laughs) advisory practice there, um, working with telco, tech, retail, pharma clients, um, on a sort of range of transformation challenges, end-to-end implementation, um, and a lot of sort of upfront sort of scoping um, strategy, operational strategy, target operating model design. So kind of a real breadth and depth of experience. And uh, uh, on our last um, live session, we actually didn't have anyone from a, a finance background. So I'm really fascinated to understand kind of your perspective of, you know, you hopefully you've had a chance to have a look at our, our, our transformation scoping checklist, just how much of this is kind of really transferable to, to the finance side of transformation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's all transferable, really. I mean, typically... Um, in a lot of organizations, you know, the CFO is, you know, the close number two to the CEO. And in a lot of organizations, the sort of succession plan up to um, CEO typically a lot of the time goes through the CFO. So you are right in the heart of um, the organization and the decision making. And the CFO's agenda is typically very high up on the CEO's agenda as well. So a good place to start then is really, as we, we think about scoping a program, what we've seen as a, a one of the critical success factors is is the, the program sponsorship that, that really drives uh, the program. So I'd be fascinated to hear your, your views and experience of working with program sponsors, what kind of works, you know, what, what are the things that, that really makes an effective program sponsor? And what, what are some of those things perhaps people should look out for if if they're sponsoring a transformation program for I think, the first time? I think the critical thing in terms of being a sponsor of a program is to really be an, a strong advocate for what the program is looking to do. Because very often, if you're in a sort of a program leadership role, delivering the program, as I typically am, um, what you're looking for from a sponsor is someone who can be an advocate for the program because typically, you know, you are putting quite a lot of change into the organization um, and people's roles can change. Um, the role of, you know, finance, HR, whatever the function is, can change quite substantially. And you do have bumps in the road. You know, there are people who are whose roles will change and they will feel uncertain um, and you need the sponsor to really be vocal. Um, so s- someone who can take ownership um, and have sometimes those difficult decisions um, and speak to their peers um, at board level or whatever level it may be to get buy-in from the rest of the organisation, really that is key from a sponsor, I think. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you know sponsors should look out for? You know, so some of the some of the behaviours or just some of the things that they might do that can be um, kind of problematic or a bit counterproductive when it comes to to transformation? Sometimes, um, I haven't seen it so much myself, but sometimes you do have sponsors who are a little bit sort of hands off and sort of leave it to the sort of programme director and the delivery team to deliver. And then that leads to that can lead to problems down the line in terms of um you know transferring capabilities into an organization so typically you know one failure you do see around programs sometimes is too much focus around the technology um yes, and the deliverable yeah. so you can have a focus on the design and then the and then the technical go live whereas where you're looking for the role of a sponsor is really to be an advocate of the change in the organization ultimately success is not a successful technical go live it is a successful adoption by the business of said processes technology um and 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 that's where you're looking for the sponsor to be a lead there to communicate the importance 
of the change to the rest of the organization. And so if you don't have that, that is a big gap in any program, I would say. In our experience, it's it's definitely the number one success factor in delivering uh, a, a, you know, a, an ultimately successful transformation is is the the the, the strength and the the quality and the engagement of of the program sponsor. And larger the organisation, the more important that is. If you are a smaller organisation and you've got a smaller number of people in HR or finance, whatever it is, you could argue that achieving that change is slightly easier, but. The larger the organization, the more global, et cetera, then the more important that becomes. So you can get away with it on smaller programs. But if, you, but if anyone's listening to this and, they, and they're leading a, an organization, it doesn't have to be big, but if you are global, um, then that's critical, really. So what, one of the areas that um, we, we often see as a bit of a challenge is where um, program teams can uh, you know, start rushing off and, and designing the, the future state before really understanding what, what the problems are that they're trying to, to solve. Um, have, have you found a, a similar challenge? And you know, how important is it to really define problems and, and look for data to support the position? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. I think um, understanding what problem you are trying to solve is very important. As you're suggesting, there can be a rush to sort of assume what the solution is, i.e., you know, implementation of a system. Um, but have you got a broader set of capabilities that you're looking at in terms of effectiveness of finance, of HR, of IT? Um, to what extent is it a system issue? Is it a data issue? Or is it um, you know roles and responsibilities and how people are performing their roles and how does and how do those elements interact with the technology and very and and what you're looking for the technology to be is an enabler for a broader sort of you know business transformation and an effectiveness piece and then being um you know having a sort of an honest assessment of to what extent a program is technology centric um, because typically you know if you are implementing a new technology it can provide an opportunity to reshape roles people might be doing sort of um, manual workarounds um, around various sort of administrative parts of their role that might fall away with the new technology and then you know what are you replacing that time with and it can be an opportunity to re-engineer roles um, so looking at a broader effectiveness of um, an organization and what people do um, is the point of view that I come from as well, because that's that's ultimately how you unlock real sort of um, step change in sort of capability, I think. And 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 one of those capabilities in terms of um, an end state and looking at the, the technology and the deliverables associated that as an enabler rather than a, an end in itself, um, I think is a good sort of state of mind and lens. Yeah, so really start at, at that holistic functional level before getting sucked into into the detail. A very high level very high level, what are those three or four or five bullet points of what you want to achieve? Mm. Um, and and then you can put some strategic objectives for the program around that, and then that can cascade into work streams and deliverables after that. But start at that very outset and make sure that you've got a good understanding of what the issues are that you're trying to solve. Yes. Yeah. Um, so sometimes that could be around the future state of the organization. What are you designing for? You know, are you know are you a fast growing organization? Um, are you looking to acquire? Are you going to be expanding overseas? Are you going to be um, including new lines of business? What are the sort of changes in processes that you that you can see coming up as a result of that? And understanding what the problems you're solving are you solving for today, or are you solving for three years or five years time? And what does that look like? Yeah. And on that change um, uh, thought, how, how soon in a program should people really start thinking about change management and those sorts of topics? Change management starts right from the outset, I think right from the beginning when you are doing that um, sort of, you know, vision and strategic objectives piece, it really does start there. You know, who are the people who you want to be sort of inside the tent, so to speak, in terms of this future state organization, and then bringing those people on board. And by getting them signed up to the objectives of what you're trying to do, you're already bringing them along the change curve um, and, and getting their buy-in. And really, it starts from the beginning. And Jason, I'm sure you would agree that a lot of organizations um, don't resource change management effectively and and a lot of the time don't resource it sufficiently. Um, and then what happens is systems go live, legacy systems do not get decommissioned and people fall back on old ways of working. And then you've spent quite a large sum of money um, on a piece of work and then people still persist with the old ways of working. And a lot yes. of that is down to change management and buy-in from people rather than a fault of technical delivery. 
Yes, yeah, because often the the most difficult thing is just simply getting people to stop doing what they they've been doing, you know, up to today, and getting them to start doing something different tomorrow. It's uh, you know the the technology tends to be relatively straightforward. Yes. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. So it's a sort of a multi-pronged approach in terms of um, it could be briefing your line managers and making sure that you know they mention things in their team meetings. Um, it's about having a change role on a program and you know uh, coaching you know sponsors and their leadership teams around the change. You know, and then it is things like you know potentially an intranet landing page or sending out emails. You know. Um, having sort of uh, town halls and sort of looking at that sort of, you know, uh, communications toolbox and working out what's right for you as an organization. Um, And I think the earlier you start that, it also helps, I think, for a program to sort of exhibit the behaviors that you want to see in the end state. So if you do want to achieve a a step change in terms of finance and how it partners, finance or HR in terms of how it partners with the business, then really as a program, you should be exhibiting those behaviors. And that means reaching out to people and and communicating in the appropriate way. Yeah, and and getting the the workstream leads, the process owners, the, the the that kind of senior leadership team within the finance function or HR function that are that are heavily involved in delivering the program to to actually go out there and engage with people and engage quite broadly across the business. Indeed, and I think and I think a point closely related to that is um, and and this is more. And this is more the case, the larger the organization you go to is you can't always keep everyone happy. Um, Sometimes you will have aspects of a change uh, where people might feel that, you know, they might be managing a large team or they might have broader responsibility and there might be an operating model change around how work is being outsourced or how work's being moved or centralized. And those sort of difficult conversations are what you need to have at the outset because you need the business to be signed up. One of the areas of pushback that we we um, quite often get actually from from leadership teams is around actually going to the business and and gathering requirements. So going out to a broad sweep of of people, not just within the function, but the the customers of that function uh, and and the 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 other parts of the organisation, and really asking for their honest feedback, their views, and kind of uh, get, getting them engaged as part of the scoping um, phase of the program. Do, do you have, a, have mm. you experienced a similar sort of challenge and, and how, how have you overcome it? Um, actually, I don't see it as a challenge necessarily. I think a mm. lot of, um, if you do go to stakeholders, they view it as an opportunity actually because they quite welcome the fact that they are being asked in terms of what their requirements are. So it could be around, you know, how you, from a finance perspective, it would be around how you track business performance. What are those KPIs? And it's an opportunity to deepen that relationship with the rest of the business. So if you engage in the right way and making sure that the sessions that you have are, are productive, I've always seen it as being something that's welcomed because ultimately those um, stakeholders, you know, can see that they will benefit from it. Yeah, I know. We, we've always found from uh, you know the stakeholders in the business, they've always very much welcomed it, and they're you know they're, they've they've been more than forthcoming with um, uh, with, with input and, and feedback. Um, it, the the resistance we've found has been within the function that that you're trying to or you're you're transforming is that it's the the senior leaders within that function that can be quite protective or concerned about going to the business and asking for their input and feedback. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think part of that. I mean, every organisation is different, but um, um, mm. you know, if you are looking at an organisation, if you're talking about finance and HR, these are both support functions. You know, and ultimately, you are supporting the business to achieve its objectives. Um, and being outward facing in that way is starting to exhibit those right behaviours, and and it can be part of a, a broader sort of capability change around finance or HR around you know how you manage those relationships with other stakeholders. Um, yeah. So 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 it's very. Much much part of a broader sort of transformational piece very often those kind of conversations because maybe before they haven't been asked when you're looking specifically at a finance transformation what what are the the typically the really important areas that you you need to kind of focus on in terms of really drilling down into particular areas to to gather requirements i i think from a finance point of view um you are the guardian of business assets and and business performance. So there is a certain hygiene level around um, reporting and um, statutory requirements in, you know, various countries and really understanding what those requirements are and making sure that you can continue to 
meet those requirements um, is absolutely sort of fundamental. So sort of one example is um, there was a new um, e-invoicing requirement in Italy, for example, that sort of came online last year. Um, So that's one example. You need to make sure that you can carry on doing those things. So that's kind of understanding where we are today and really kind of getting getting to grips with um, what what needs to change, well, what some of those case for change elements may be. Um, but if we start, you know, looking looking forward into the future, when it comes to setting vision, strategic objectives, and things like design principles, uh, what what have you found works, and how how do organisations best approach that kind of really defining that 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 future future vision of of how finance is going to operate? Yeah, design principles are those things. There's an old expression which I'm not particularly a, a big fan of, but people use it. Um, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and yes. and I think what we mean by that is you can start with you know a grand plan and a very good idea of where you want to go, um, but things happen on the way. Issues come up. It might be around resources. It might be around um, you know issues with data, whatever it is that that cause you to make decisions along the way to keep the program on track and change scope, etc. And those design principles are those things that you refer back to, to make sure that you're still achieving the ultimate objectives and you keep the original intention in mind. So I guess it's, it's a set of value statements that you can, that you can keep referring back to Mm. and keeping everyone honest. And almost when you are looking at, you know, signing off various stages of the program, making sure that you're still holding true to those issues, you know, because you may have to make fundamental changes in terms of scope, you know, managing uh, quality, cost and time, you know, the old, the old classic, um, and then just making sure that you're staying on track. So is there an ideal number of uh, design principles that people should use? What you're looking for from design principles is to provide a linkage from strategic objectives through to what you're trying to achieve. So, uh, you know, you can have design principles around, you know, uh, how much cost that you want to take out of the business, you know, particular changes around process, how you want to use data, you know, the kind of reporting that you want, whatever it is. And then you can link deliverables and outcomes of the program to those design principles. And it's however many you need. You know, I've seen programs with two or three. I've actually seen programs that have had seven or eight or 10. Um, You know, I think it's whatever is right for you. You know, and and you can go into sort of varying levels of details. You can keep it quite high level, but I've also seen programs where they've gone into quite a lot of detail, and that's actually worked quite well. Yeah, that must really help when people are kind of stuck in a particular, you know, with a particular design problem. To have that guidance must be really quite useful. Yes, yes. So, for example, you know, I've seen to give a tangible example. You know, I've seen um, design principles around, for example, how people want a treasury management process to work, and that's quite informative to the program because, you know, in this instance, it was a CFO um, had quite a strong um, point of view based on his prior experience around how that process should run. So, it was very instructive to the program to have that level of detail in a design principle. Uh, and therefore, when you are looking at making design decisions throughout a program, it helps the program team to make decisions and not um, have a bottleneck around decision making as well. So it, it can perform a number of roles, have, having good design principles. Yeah. yeah. And how soon should people start thinking about their vision? The vision piece very much sort of happens mm-hmm. up front because that's the point at which you're shaping the program. And um what you're looking to deliver. And I think the earlier you start that, the better, really. And it really is an opportunity, um, as we were talking about in one of the other questions around speaking to external stakeholders and customers of the function and really trying to sort of understand where you want to place the emphasis, you know, because you might start out with a certain emphasis and then you realize, oh, actually, you know, we're unlocking you know, X, Y, and Z, um, you know, and does it present opportunities elsewhere? And to what extent do you want to sort of also include those elements, you know, and what are the dependencies yeah. as well? Um, so very much starting that right at the outset, I think is key. Yeah, so the, that, that, that whole kind of vision, strategic objectives, design principles, they really do help guide decision making on the programme. And when we think about that decision making piece, it kind of brings us naturally on to, to governance. And what in your experience kind of really works from a, a governance perspective, especially on the larger programs? You know, what, what are those key elements that a governance structure needs? In it? I think in terms of governance, 
the first element is sort of how you go about planning um, and particularly on sort of large programs with your sort of, you know, large global corporates, you can't centralize too much planning. I think at a central level, you need to sort of keep your milestones and understand where you are against each of those milestones. But you are looking for each sort of work stream really to, um, you know, have their own day by day, task by task kind of plan. Um, and where I've seen programs kind of fall down is where, um, you do need to make sure that all the work stream leads have that sort of planning capability and you do have to bring everyone up to the same sort of level um, in terms of what yes. you're looking for, particularly if it's if there are people in the program who maybe have BAU roles who maybe haven't been on transformation programs before who may not necessarily understand the value of that planning piece. Um, I think that's quite yeah. critical at the outset. In, in terms of that kind of the, that, that program management or project planning capability, um, how have you gone about kind of making sure that the, the workstream leads can kind of do what they need to do in their new roles? Because it, it's something that's, that's a challenge on every program. Yes, there are various ways to sort of look at that. I think, as I was mentioning before, you know, you do need each workstream to have a good view of what their day-by-day -day plan is and who is doing what. And therefore, out of that, you can then understand what the resource requirements are. You can support it centrally and have sort of PMO analysts who can, who can support mm. that. But ultimately, you are looking for, you do need a strong sort of planning capability that is pervasive throughout the program. It isn't something that you just write, that's a planning team, they do the plan yes. and everyone else does the work. It, it doesn't need to be quite pervasive because you do have to um, make people accountable in the program for delivering their beer. Yeah. Um, and and part of that is understanding their plan. So I think my one bit of advice would be, yes, you need an overall plan, but but everyone in the program needs to play their part. Yes, yeah. So don't don't try and run a transformation program with one big plan in in MS Project or Primavera or whatever you use. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I have been in programs where the ask has been, "Can we produce a big plan?" And then you spend literally weeks, if not months, on that plan, and it's just updated for its own sake. And then in the end, work streams end end up working on their own plans so that they can have something that's workable. Yeah. yeah it, becomes an industry in and of itself this, this monster that you've built just needs constant exactly meeting. exactly yeah and then you have meetings that are just about updating the plan which in itself has no value right so um, you have to be careful that you're not creating yeah. unnecessary and, and when we think about that you know sort of that that frequency of, of various governance meetings well what do what do you find works at the various levels of governance in a program um i think at the work stream level um particularly if you're uh deploying sort of you know cloud-based technology you can have daily stand-ups with your team um when i've run work streams having a daily stand-up and saying right you know what's everyone working on what did they do yesterday what are they looking at today what are the things that you need and then you're asking for information from your team members what are the things that you need support on or help on um that's at a daily level um i think overall sort of you know work stream if you are managing a, a team or a small project you know you want something minimum monthly if not weekly um and then in terms of steerco, I think in terms of steer, sorry, jargon, steering committees for an overall program, um, I think very often it can depend on sort of how compressed your time scales are. Um, so, I mean, I've seen uh, programs that yeah. are operating to quite aggressive timelines. Um, and I've seen at certain periods of the program, you might want to run those steercos on a weekly basis. You might have, you know, a really sort of urgent red flag issue that is really a critical on the critical path and you may want to get sort of weekly updates on that issue and therefore you have steercos on that equally um you know if if a program is going well um and you have confidence around how it's delivering and you've got a cadence where things are going smoothly you know you can reduce the frequency of that governance steering committees you know because of the accountability it does create a lot of work sometimes and i think Getting that balance right is important because what you don't want to do is get everyone spending half their time worrying about the governance as well as delivering the program and sort of getting that balance right is important. But it's very much on a sort of case-by-case -case basis, I would say. Yes, yeah, no, and it also depends on the amount of risk, obviously, and which you touched on there. You know, I've certainly had an experience of a program where we were uh, we were meeting um, at least weekly at one stage because uh, we we were migrating a large number of suppliers from um, one one uh, uh, you know, master vendor to another, and 
there was a lot of commercial risk around that. There were millions at stake. Um, and uh, the the, the uh, COO, the CFO and the CHRO wanted to be updated. It was literally twice a week at one point because yeah. we were in really quite dicey um, uh, commercial negotiations. I had a very similar experience and I had something similar where we had a data issue and it was involving an external vendor and we had weekly steercos. But then at the end of each day, there was an update to the members of that steering committee as well on that wow daily on, on that one issue on that one topic um yeah but on the other hand i have seen it the other way around where uh, we were doing an implementation of an erp um, and we selected a vendor and you start out planning for the worst you know you think you know we have to keep on top of it making sure the issues don't come up and in the end you know the vendor was actually really superb they had a great team mm-hmm. and the steer codes, you know they really came down in frequency because it it was going pretty smoothly actually they had yeah. experience you know, with their competitors in the same industry using the same technology and they had a lot of, you know, material that they could reuse and it went very smoothly. So very much judge it on its own merits. Yeah, so in, in that kind of what, what you're describing almost as a best case scenario on a, on a transformation programme, how, how often did, did they um, drop their frequency to? What, what Was it monthly? Or was monthly, it dropped it to monthly. I think, yeah. think monthly is probably a minimum. Yeah, yeah. I would suggest um, because you do need to keep some accountability. I think minimum is sort of monthly. And then make sure you have a sort of a standing agenda in terms of progress and then, um, you know, have updates around um, specific issues. So going back to the point around design principles, you might want to structure, you could structure it around design principles and say, if you if, if a program is going smoothly, then maybe having, you know, on each sticker, you could have a focus on some of the topics within that program that align with those design principles. Yes, yeah, adherence to any variation. Yes, so if there are any variations that have been made, it's an opportunity to get on the front foot with some of those things. I really like the idea of having having you know you know where if you've got that that breathing space, really focusing on those design principles and making that a kind of a key topic on on you know the the monthly steerco meetings. That's a really interesting approach. This podcast is brought to you by Underscore, the transformation capability specialists. To find out more, visit underscore-group.com. So as we move on and we start thinking about how we're going to, to manage this this behemoth of a, of a program or a portfolio, um, what, you know, there's a, there's a, a wealth of uh, different methodologies out there. There's MSP, IPMA. There's you know, there's lots and lots of different kind of tool sets, mm. really, or you know, methodologies for managing um, uh, the different levels of project, program, and portfolio. Mm. What, what have you found uh, to be the most effective? Uh, you know, when when you think about those different methodologies, do you have a preference, or you know, what? what um. I think the starting point for me is around making sure that everyone is clear what the plan is, what the milestones are, what the deliverables are, and then getting to the level of understanding in a plan where you know who is doing what when, so that you're confident you've got the bandwidth within the team to do it. That's a good starting point. Um, So at a program level, making sure that you've understood what each of the work streams are doing and the milestones and crucially the interdependencies between them. So understanding, you know, who needs what from what part of the program, uh, that is something that you need to sort of manage centrally. Yes. Yeah. I think. Um, And particularly where there are dependencies into other programs or you are dependent on things from other parts of the organization, understanding what those external dependencies are is critical uh, because what you're looking to do as a program leadership is to manage those issues. Typically, you know, you are competing for resource, you know, your transformation is not the only game in town. Yes. Uh, You know, there are other things going on. There are other calls on people's time in terms of BAU and what you need to be able to do is to articulate your, your sponsor and external stakeholders what you're trying to do and whose time you need. I think I think that's critical. Um, taking a slightly different emphasis, I think the ways of working are important as well. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're managing a global team and thinking about how you can use collaboration tools. So, you know, Microsoft Teams is relatively new um, and that has got quite rich functionality. Uh, yes. You know, you can do sort of um, group chats, but you can sort of have documents that everyone updates. And it can be in some in some cases a more effective way of working than just sort of emailing documents or using SharePoint, for example. So looking at collaboration tools and thinking at the outset, designing for that 
um, and, and, and sort of saying and, and having some guidelines around that to say you might want to say, for example, you know, where possible, we will have, you know, Microsoft Teams and you know, or kind of whatever it is. Thinking about how what the tools you're going to use to manage the program is important as well, because it sounds a bit dry um, and not that important, but actually some focus on it. It can greatly improve the effectiveness of the program in terms of the basics. And when we, you know, thinking on global programs, um, I've I've definitely been on the receiving end of 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 um, some. Uh, interesting behaviours when it comes to kind of setting up those regular weekly calls or monthly meetings is that uh, it, it's so easy if you're sat in one time zone to just go, oh, we're going to meet at 12 midday every every week. And uh, I've always made a real point on any programme, a global programme that I'm running is to share the pain. You know, the, it's just not possible to get everybody on the same call at the same time and for it to be within working hours. But generally, it tends to be Australia that gets hit worst on these programs. I agree. I was just going to say that, actually. And I think one of the things that it's easy to do, you know, clearly, you know, we are UK based. So I guess we tend to run UK based pro, UK based programs predominantly. And a behavior that you want to watch is that you're not always asking Asia or Australia to dial in late, you know, sometimes doing things yeah. to their time scale. You have to manage the greater the time zone difference, the more sensitively you need to sort of manage situations and constantly asking teams to dial in at sort of 6 a.m., 7 a.m. or 8, 9 o'clock at night. Or worse, yeah. <laughs> um, as, you know, you're going to sort of work people quite hard and when it gets to the end of a program, people will be sort of, you know, physically and emotionally a bit exhausted. So watching out for that, I absolutely yeah. agree, Jason. Right at the point where you need them to be out there, you know, as ambassadors, selling selling the vision and this new way of working and you know walking the talk and doing all that great stuff that's going to engage and motivate people you've just burnt them out over the course of the past eight nine months and yeah they're, they're not going to thank you for it are they no no you know we've talked about methodology but now if we kind of focus on the people element of it when we're when we're looking at a, a kind of program and project management and so specifically about the capabilities that you need to be effective in these different roles and there is a difference between being an effective project manager and a, an effective program manager so I'd, I'd be keen to understand from your perspective what what does a good project manager look like? Well, what are the kind of key attributes of a good project manager? A good project manager has a good handle of, on the detail, is able to um, build a plan that focuses focuses on what the tasks are that need to be completed on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. You know, the deliverables that have been agreed to with the program, making sure that all the members in the project team understand what their role is and is able to you know run a work stream or a project with a cadence that tracks against that and is able to you know effectively replan when things come up um, so you're very much focusing on those sort of outputs i think at the program level what you're looking for is something a bit different you know you are managing conflicting resources you are looking at the different priorities on the program and sort of balancing against those you are managing a lot of the time particularly in big global corporates the external environment and by external environment i mean external to the program you know and yes. um making your sort of sponsor aware of um how the program is going but then any noise that might be created by the program or is being felt by the program that could influence things either way um and you have got much more of a sort of an outward looking viewpoint at the project level you're more sort of inward looking in terms of what other a, B, and C of what you're looking to do. Yeah, and uh, on the on the larger programs, then it, it, you know you often get a a kind of a, a split at the program level, in that you'll have a program manager, but there'll also be a program director. Um, have you kind of worked in that environment where that you have those two roles at the at the program level? Yes, yes, I think. I think um, particularly on the very large programs, you can have multiple program managers, you know, um, you can have, uh, you know, a technology deployment and there might be an operating model change. There might be an offshoring piece. There'll be a change management piece. And in sort of the large, you know, global, you know, FTSE 10, FTSE 20, FTSE 50 organizations, each of those work streams is a substantial program in itself. So, yeah. so you are looking for um, people who can be sort of, I guess, inward looking, for want of a better expression, um, in terms of making sure that those elements deliver. And in that context, the project director 
is very much, you know, scanning the environment, looking at the broader sort of context, getting buy-in into the program, because you are, you know, affecting quite a large change. Um, and therefore, who are the people who need to be bought in? You know, is the program still meeting its objectives? Uh, is it still running to budget? Um, and, you know, taking the pulse of Steerco members and making sure that, that there are people who are maybe advocates, people who aren't, uh, making sure that people are, are in the right frame of mind so that you can do what you need to do as a program and being that and being that voice of the program you do have that split on the larger programs but you don't always have to have that split to be honest you know if you're looking at a smaller program um, you don't necessarily always have to have that split you can have a program lead you know reporting into a sort of sponsor who can be um, you know the group cfo or the cfo's direct report but the larger programs will have that split as yeah, you indicate, I, I, yeah. I think under the as you go from project to program management to program direction, it's the, the the level of emotional intelligence and influencing and engaging, you know, the, those types of you know capability or skills, competencies, whatever you want to call them, have just become the the ramp up significantly, and and the ability to deal with large amounts of complexity and process a lot of data. Uh, I think they're, they're some of those things that, yes. that really ramp up as you as you kind of go up uh, that kind of scale. Absolutely. I think fundamentally in terms of what you're looking for from, from project managers is a technical capability and a skill set. Program management is much more soft focus, as you're saying, you know, every organization has a different culture, a different ways of ways of working. And you have to understand the art of program management is learning how to navigate that environment yes. so that you can achieve the change that's required. Yeah. What you're doing is, is making a change to the culture of that business. Yes. And I think and I think that's where the sort of mix of resources is important. And I think um, where the real benefit is of bringing external people, be it sort of contract interim or consultancies, where where you can benefit from external experience is people who have been in a variety of environments and understood what has worked um, and have formed that that role before. Because sometimes in an organization, if you haven't gone through that kind of change before, it is a skill set in its own right and recruiting externally for it and getting a uh, a sort of uh, a consulting partner or a, or recruiting a, a set of resources with that skill set um, greatly increases your yeah, chances of success. I think. But, but working very closely with a senior member of the leadership team of that function that's being transformed, if it's a single function, somebody that's on the you know on the payroll that that you know has that that real you know accountability to the program, uh, sorry to the program sponsor along with the program manager director. That, that yeah, thing. and I think ideally what you're looking for is someone if you are a sponsor, someone who can act as a sounding board, who can provide you with a bit of coaching in terms of transformation piece. So you can reach out, so you can have a, have a sort of an ongoing dialogue with them around what the sponsor needs to be doing, you know, and, and someone who has got a bit of experience and has seen the good points. Yeah. And it's a question we, uh, you know, I've asked of many program sponsors is, you know, has anybody ever sat down with you and and given you a a role profile or a job description for being a program Mm. sponsor? And unsurprisingly, the answer generally comes back. No, Um, I've yet to find anybody that says, yeah, they did actually, it was really good. Um, So the role of the program manager then really does become that, that kind of coach to 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 the to the exec sponsor of of the overall transformation it's uh it's an interesting role that's for sure yeah 100 agree 100 agree yeah so be- before we kind of leave off the the topic of capability one of the other areas we've identified as being a, a, a success factor is is around solution design um and specifically this is where we're asking, you know, we seconded really great operational people onto a program and say, you know, great news, you're a process owner, you're, you're a workstream lead. Um, you're, you're now accountable and responsible for designing our future state. So you need to design policies, processes, systems, new ways of working, new uh, organization structures, new operating models. And, and that's, that can be a really big stretch for people. I was just wondering how uh, how you found kind of the that 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 land in the world of finance. Do people really take to it? You know, where where are the challenges around that? Yeah, the solution design point that has sort of changed in recent years. You know, with sort of for want of a better expression, sort of old school on premise. There's very much a sort of a waterfall approach, and you would design everything from the ground up, you know, and and that would be across everything. So your sort of core finance processes, your record to report, order to cash, purchase to pay, etc. Whereas 
In terms of speaking from a technology perspective, where a lot of the vendors, be it Oracle, Workday, SAP are moving to, where they have sort of pre-built sort of processes and process taxonomies, and you have processes that are configurable. So you don't have to build it from the ground up. You, you basically configure who does what, when, and in what order, um, rather than building it from the ground up. And then increasingly moving to a more agile sort of way of working. And I think it's still relatively, you know, new in terms of finance and HR. But I think in terms of your solution design, you need to sort of differentiate what are the absolute must-haves from from the sort of nice-to-haves so that you can navigate that environment so that when you are assessing the various options in terms of what's going to meet your requirements that you're picking the right one so rather than doing everything from the grounds up to the nth degree of detail and producing sort of you know 500 page blueprint documents which no one's going to read actually try to condense it down to those key elements and making sure that you're in an agile sense you know making sure that your vendors can meet those requirements um, is probably a more important lens than saying we need to design everything from the ground up to the nth degree what's the future state of the organization what geographies are you going to be in Um, speaking from a finance perspective what are the accounting requirements around those around those geographies for example and then and then designing for that future state and coming at it from that high level progressively going into more detail so on that detail point so let's say we you know as part of our transformation we've selected a, a new cloud erp solution uh, that's delivered as software as a service so you know uh, at, at the scoping stage um what level of detail should uh, an organization go to in terms of their design, so their overall solution design, and so key elements of that design, and how, how detailed should they go before they sign the contract and, and, and start putting people into design workshops? I think you need to be as detailed as you can. First of all, understanding you know what processes are in scope, what geographies are in scope, what existing systems are in scope. Um, you know, And I think being absolutely clear on what is must have and what is nice to have Um, and then you know in terms of understanding sort of volumes you know integration requirements all that stuff is absolutely sort of fundamental because that is how you need to measure each vendor it's easy to be distracted by smooth sales pitch any vendor whereas in reality what you probably have to do is understanding you know what is your list of absolute must-haves and be as detailed as you can in terms of those must-haves so that you can get as specific as answers as you can in terms of those issues so that you can see through some of the sales patterns and and from a process standpoint so in in the past on kind of traditional on-premise erp solutions you'd you'd kind of design down to a really granular level down to a kind of work instruction level then you'd give that to your system implementation partner and go we want it exactly like this please go away and build it it's that you know how, how you know for people that are kind of used to that sort of you know big, big on-premise Oracle, you know um, SAP, PeopleSoft uh, sort of solution. What what are the differences between kind of that approach and and the new kind of cloud technology? The new cloud technologies have an out of the box sort of way of doing things, and I think the sort of mindset is um, they will have blueprints for each industry so if you're in sort of retail or if you're in professional services or if you're in retail banking whatever it is they will have a predefined set of processes and what you don't need to do is design processes down to level four or five the approach that you need to take is something a bit different which is what is the overall taxonomy of processes you know which processes are you happy to take um, a pre-configured design and which processes are you know are specific to your organization that you do have a tailored process. So typically from yeah. a finance perspective, where you might see that is, for example, revenue processing. You know, mm. paying an invoice is paying an invoice. There's a right way and a wrong way, basically. Um, yeah. But, you know, revenue processes is an example where, um, you know, typically that is bespoke to your organization. So you have to understand what your bespoke requirements are versus where you're happy to take something standard. Um, and having that lens is more important than designing everything from the ground up, as you were sort of suggesting. Yeah, I guess you could you could waste a lot of time if, uh, you know, you're going to take it out of the box and it works the way it works. It's uh, an area that you could perhaps... Uh, yeah. Um, over design have you have you seen that people kind of going too deep on their design in the scoping phase um i have i have seen that yeah because i think people fall back on tried and trusted ways of doing things your sort of classic waterfall and then you get sort of these sort of you know lovely well-constructed sort of blueprint documents that probably get read once as part of the sign-off and then sort of you know 
sit on someone's shelf. You do see it over-engineered. But I think there is a, a more broader point to be made around sort of agile approach. So, you know, how these solutions typically get deployed is in an agile way. So you will, um, you know, have an initial set of functionalities and put that out to the business and then, you know, maybe in further further deployments, add more and more and more. The important point in terms of communicating with the business is getting them educated on that's how it's going to be so that when they get an initial wave of deployment, they're not disappointed that, oh, well, it only does this, it doesn't do that. You have to communicate and educate the audience that say, okay, we're implementing this cloud thing and this is what's going to be in the first wave and and be quite specific around what elements you want to add in further stages and when those stages are going to be so that you're setting the right expectation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, before we just move on to our final point on business case, Shafiq, it would be really interesting just to get your, your perspective on the target operating model design and how much should be done uh, during the, the scoping phase um, uh, before you actually get to that final investment decision and you, know, you start bringing in external suppliers and new technology and all the rest of it. Is there, is there an ideal point you should get to in terms of the granularity of your design before you, you kind of move on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if we're talking about sort of target operating model design um, and sort of you know future size and shape of that organisation, and particularly if you've got a business case which is predicated on cost reduction, you know, I think you do need to have an idea of what the sort of you know new run rate of cost is going to be for the new function, based on a sensible set of assumptions around efficiencies, etc., that makes up that business case. Um, you know, and and to do that, you do need to do a target operating model design in terms of, you know, what activities are done where, by who, um, and then looking at things like benchmarking um, and, and, and making a sensible set of assumptions around any efficiencies that you might want to make. And that is, and that should go hand in hand with the business case. It's one of those key inputs to the business case, obviously. And that's that's our final final topic on our, our list of uh, 10 kind of critical success factors on the checklist. So, you know, uh, all this has been leading up to putting together a, a business case that's going to go in front of uh, the exec uh, committee and uh, decisions made to invest a, a, a good few million pounds, dollars, yen, cents, whatever it is. When, it, when we think about transformation, business cases are there kind of subtle differences or there big differences between you know a typical investment case that a board would see versus a transformation business case and what are they yes i mean i think i think it's very important to understand what the business case needs to articulate is the the broader objectives of the program so you know if you have a business case mm. that is predicated on cost savings, then typically your sort of preamble to the business case is a context in which you are making the organization more efficient. And therefore, the business case will be predicated on cost savings. However, you know, you may well have a business case that is predicated on an organization growing, which I've seen a lot, you know, and Mm -hmm. therefore your business case isn't necessarily predicated on reducing cost of IT finance or HR or whatever, you are emphasizing some of those qualitative benefits. So you are meeting expanding future needs of the business and therefore your emphasis on on benefits in terms of qualitative benefits versus necessarily sort of you know hard pounds and payback for example might be different so it's important that you yeah. coach the business case in that sort of broader context because um so that it sets the right expectation and then it's your opportunity to get buy-in into the program more broadly so it's very it's very important that that business case is is articulated in the right way in terms of the the key people that you need to get to as part of um, uh, you know getting getting your case through, you know, how how do you kind of go about engaging the right people before you get to that you know meeting where you ultimately ask for them? Yeah, so I think um, every organisation has a different sort of governance process for those business cases, and it's understanding the the sort of you know context in which those decisions are made, um, and and who are the key people who need to, who need to be influenced along the way and getting their feedback in terms of the business case and engaging with them not super early on but you know at the right time in the process you can say look this is a business case you know this is the way we're shaping it you know here's an idea of cost here are the benefits that we're 
proposing, you know, is this something that you can sign up to and getting those people on site? Because typically, you know, if you've got a CFO or a budget holder who is signing off a business case, they might go to their direct reports and sort of say, you know, and get their advice on whether they think it will fly. And typically you're looking to influence those people in this process. Um, so it's understanding who those people are and, and bring them on the journey. And I think right at the outset, we were talking about sort of change network and those sort of things. This is part and yeah. parcel of that as well. I wonder if finance transformation uh, business cases get an easier ride because it's finance or whether they get extra scrutiny. I'm not sure. <laughs> I would suggest that they don't. They get a harder ride because yeah. they are finance. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there is a broader point around business cases, which is to understand the broader uh, priorities of the business because you might be focused on doing your transformation, be it in finance, HR or wherever else. But the business might have different priorities. And actually, it's about for a sponsor speaking to their sort of peers um, and whatever governance forums are out there and informal conversations around understanding, you know, is there an appetite to do this? Because what you sometimes don't want to do is distract people from their day jobs and spend a lot of time on target operating models and designs and costs and business cases. And then ultimately the business turns around and says, you know, this is not a priority. So I think having those initial conversations is also important as well. If you are uh, a C-suite holder, getting the views of your fellow C-suite members um, around what you're trying to do so you can establish, you know, if you're in the top four or five priorities for the year. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you know, thank you again for, for your, your time on this, Shafiq. It's been absolutely fascinating. And one of the, the kind of key takeaways for me is just the more we speak to people in different areas of business transformation, the more it, it, the, 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 the consistencies come out. Um, it's transformation. I think, in you know, in my view, is a process. You know, there, it's something that you can learn how to do. There's no real kind of magic here. You know, it's not easy, but you know, there's there's definitely a lot of consistency between the different functional areas and and how you go about making transformational change happen, which has been fascinating. Um, if you were to kind of leave, um, you know, a, a, you know our, our listeners, whether they're a program sponsor or a, a you know, transformation practitioner, with with some kind of key thoughts, what what would they be as you kind of reflect on the scoping phase? In terms of the scoping phase, I mean, definitely have a view of the priorities around what you're trying to achieve and have a clear view of those priorities. Um, And also take a sort of holistic view to that transformation. You don't just want technically strong people who know their content. You also need to be able to transition new capabilities into an organization and a focus around change management and people and how to get the broader organization working in your favor to achieve your program is important you know, around sort of, you know, resources and having the right people, etc. So scanning the environment around the program um, is important as well. Thanks so much for that. Um, hopefully, you'll join us again when we we have a look at our our, our build checklist, which will be coming out in the uh, hopefully not too distant future. Um, and yeah, look, look forward to speaking to you again. Sounds great. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to uh, speak again. And it's been very interesting. And you're right, it is. It, there's a lot of commonalities in terms of how you do transformation, be it HR, you know, finance, or customer or wherever else. So um, yeah, definitely a ripe topic. Yes, absolutely. Well, that, that's, that's the aim for, you know, sort of uh, the uh, another guest will be actually looking at the, the sales side, the customer, the revenue side of the business, you know, how, how similar or different are the, uh, the kind of function, the support functions, if we can call them that versus the, the kind of the front of front office. Mm. So yeah, I'll be fascinated to see how much of a, a parallel there will be there. Um, but yeah, no, th- thanks again. It's been excellent. Great. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Underscore, the transformation capability specialists. To find out more, visit underscore-group.com. You can subscribe to the feed via your favorite podcasting app. You can contribute to the conversation via our WhatsApp group. And if you would like to feature in a future recording, contact us on social media to find out more.